You ever notice a parent, uh, as they watch their children at play or at graduation or, or simply just performing, the smile on their face, their face says it all, doesn't it? They are proud of what their child is doing. And so they do that, they, they express their approval with a smile. A smile is generally an expression of what? Approval, satisfaction, pleasure, or sometimes even amusement. While a, a frown expresses what? Disapproval, right? Whenever someone is not pleased with what we do, you don't get a smile from them, do you? You get something else, right? And uh, it's not very pleasant. We get disapproval. We don't like that. And so when we are pleased with the conduct that someone is doing, uh, they normally express it with a smile rather than a, a frown. The question is, does our behavior as believers make God smile? When someone cuts you off at the traffic light or runs a traffic light and you almost run into them, uh, your reaction how you respond. Does that make God smile and says, oh boy, that's my boy, or that's my child? Or does God really frown and sort of be embarrassed that that's how his child behaved? In the book of Numbers, chapter 6, God instructed Moses to direct Aaron and his sons uh, to, to give a blessing uh, to those among the children of Israel who took the Nazarite vow. It was a voluntary vow that they had taken. And so God instructed uh, the, the priesthood to give these individuals a special blessing. And we find that blessing in Numbers chapter 6. But a part of that blessing that we want to focus on says, May the Lord make his face to shine upon you, and be gracious unto you. Or, as the New Living Translation puts it, may the Lord smile on you and be gracious unto you. Now, we would all like to receive God's smile, wouldn't we? We don't want any frowns from God, do we? We want God to smile on everything that we do. Because we want to be conscious of the fact that he's watching. He knows what's going on. And so the bottom line for the children of Israel who took that vow was that the, 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 the blessing would only apply if the people's behavior were in keeping with the vow they had voluntarily taken. They weren't forced to do anything. They voluntarily took the vow. And so God instructed the priests to give them this blessing. He says, the Lord will smile on you and make his face and be gracious unto you. In other words, if their behavior was pleasing to God, he would smile on them and show them his favor, or they would experience the blessings of the Lord. Now, the Bible reminds us in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 8 that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, isn't he? And if that is the case, then his, his desire to be pleased hasn't changed for us today. What he expected of the children of Israel to please him applies even to us today. And so, the question is, as a child of God, do you make God smile by the things that you do, by the behavior that you carry out in your life on a day-to-day -day basis? Well, tonight, by looking at just one passage, just one brief passage of Scripture, uh, we want to look at what does not please God. And it'll give us a pretty good idea of what really makes God smile. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 and 16 says, Do not love this world, nor the things it offers you. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and pride in our achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father, but are from this world. And so, the first point we want to make is, Christians engaged in worldliness does not make God smile. Christians engaged in worldliness does not make God smile. Now, the word in this passage 
love has a different meaning. It's a strong word, uh, but it has a different meaning for different people. Some people who take it seriously see it from a passionate perspective. Some people who don't take it seriously think, see love as like. What does it mean in this context? It means affection. Do not have affection for, is what he's saying. It means affection. To be devoted to. To find irresistible. Or to care about. Or to care for. And the thought here is to not be so attached to this world and its stuff that we develop a deep affection for it. Now, is that true of all of us? Someone has said uh, that, that when the rapture occurs, some believers are going to go up foot first because they are so attached to the things of this world, they're going to be holding on to them. That's what this word affection means, attached to. What is referred to as, as, uh, by this word world? It certainly doesn't speak of the planet that we live on or creation in general. Instead, it speaks of the actual system that man has structured to create his own kind of happiness without God and dominated by the influence of Satan. Now, we don't really think about it that way. But that's the way it is. The Bible describes Satan as the God of this world. And that's what he's speaking about. This man-made structure could include some things that we are quite familiar with, but we don't really think about when we think about getting involved in them or being devoted to them or being affectionate for them or finding them irresistible. Three areas. Culture. We need to be very careful about how we engage in culture as those who name the name of Christ. Culture is good, but not everything about culture Christians should be engaged in. And then there is the arts, what they call the arts and sciences, and that would include things like the movies and Hollywood and and all that sort of stuff. And then, of course, there's education, and I'm sure we've all heard horror stories of parents who send their children to universities and colleges and and find out that they are indoctrinated by things that they never even heard of. And so these are the the three areas that are included in this structure, this man-made structure that is dominated by Satan. And when we as believers get involved in these areas, we find very much that we're not making God smile. He's more or less frowning on our involvement in these things. And so in a nutshell, such a structure includes any area any area where God is not loved or welcomed. Now, you could think of a whole lot of areas where God is not loved and God is not welcome. Those are the areas that make up this man-made structure that is dominated and influenced by Satan. And so the question is, do you find this world system irresistible to the point where you are devoted to it and care for it to the neglect of God and his kingdom values? That's a question that all of us need to, need to consider and think about every single day that we live on planet Earth. Because the devil is coming at us from every possible angle that we could think of to cause us to find this world system irresistible and affectionate and be devoted to it and to care for it. And so what these verses offer is a very, very strong warning against the world and its counterfeit ways. Now, we know that Satan wanted to be like God. He said that himself. And because he could not get what he wanted, he decided for what we might call second best. He decided to create an entire counterfeit system. And so he's counterfeited just about everything there is about God. Even to the point when we read the book of Revelation, we see that there is a a counterfeit trinity. And so he's counterfeited everything about God. And so we need to be careful 
Because what this verse tells us is, is we, need to be, we need to be aware of the counterfeit ways that Satan has created to entrap God's people. It's a warning that applies to all of the Lord's people everywhere, none excluded. Now, contrary to what, people, what some people might believe, worldliness is not just limited to external behavior. A lot of times we think of worldliness as just external, like uh, the places that we go uh, or hang out or the things that we engaged in for pleasure or enjoyment or excitement or some of the things that we hold so close and so near to our, uh, dear and dear to our hearts that we engage in, the people that we hang out or associate with, and activities and engagement. But worldliness is also internal because it starts where? Where does it start? In the heart. That's where it starts. And what does the Bible say about the heart? It is deceitful and above all things there's a word before wickedness. Desperate. You know what desperate means? Getting it at whatever cost. And that's what the heart is. The heart will seek to get whatever it wants at all costs. The heart is deceitful and desperately wicked, the scripture says. And that's where this worldliness starts. It starts in the heart. But it's illustrated by three specific attitudes. That again, we don't really think about as we engage in day-to-day activities and get involved in some things that we really shouldn't be involved in. What are those attitudes? Well, the first one is the desire for physical pleasure. And that is an obsession with gratifying physical desires. The second is a desire for everything we see. That is, a craving and accumulation of things, or what we might call bowing to the God of materialism. And then the third one is the pride in our accomplishments and our our belongings. That is, an obsession with the position or, or the importance that one has achieved or accomplished in life. Now, if you think about it, you realize that these are the very same areas Eve was tempted with by the serpent, according to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 6. The same areas. Not only that, these are also the three areas of attack that Satan used to tempt Jesus in the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4. The very same three areas. And so we are then challenge to think about what really pleases God. What is it? A couple of things. Valuing self-control. If we are able to see how important self-control is in our lives, then we won't get involved or we won't allow ourselves to get tempted to get involved in these areas that fit into these three attitudes that the world has. And then there's a spirit of kindness. You know, we don't have too many kind people in our world today. God wants his people to be the exception. A spirit of kindness. And then there's a commitment to humble service. Ever notice how it's so hard for the church sometimes to find volunteers? The church sometimes scrambles to get people to get involved in God's work. And then, you know, we we often say that God's work is the most noble work on earth. If it is, why is it so hard to get people involved? Why is it so hard to get God's people involved? You know, in Christian education, we had a training uh, for for people who wanted to teach Sunday school. A lot of people went into the training. Pastor, Pastor Father taught a lot of people. But guess what? We still were short. The people got the training, but they still didn't volunteer to teach. 
And God has that problem. And so one of the things that makes God smile is a commitment to humble service. You know, people don't want to do anything unless they get a little bit of glory for it, a little bit of praise for it, or unless they get something from it. They, they, they adopt this attitude that the world has whenever they are confronted about doing anything. The, the, the cliche is, what's in it for me? And sadly to say, God frowns on his people when we have that attitude. Especially when we consider what God has done for us at such a high price, but didn't cost us a single thing. Something to think about, isn't it? And so what makes God smile? Value in self-control, the spirit of kindness, and a commitment to humble service, among other things, as we'll see as we go along. But we need to think about this, too. It's not at all impossible to give others the impression that we reject worldly gratifications while still having worldly attitudes lingering in our hearts. That happens a lot too. You know, people praise us and they, they look highly at us sometimes when we behave in such a way, but they don't know what's lingering in the heart sometimes. But on the other hand, like Jesus, it's also possible to love and spend time with sinners while having, well, firmly keeping a commitment to God's kingdom values. And so if we look at Jesus' life, we see that it's very much possible to live in this world in such a way that we can spend time with sinners and love them without compromising our values to the point where God frowns on us because of some of the things that we do Four are the among sinners in order to get them to respond to us. Romans chapter 12, verse 2, gives us another challenge. Paul says, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a, a new person. How? By changing the way you think. And what will that do? He says, then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. And so Christians can make God smile. Christians who make God smile have decided that for them, worldly behavior is absolutely off limits. That's a determination that they've already made in their hearts. But the question is, is that enough? Or should, we, should our refusal to conform to the values of this world go even deeper than just behavior or customs? Should it? What do we think? Absolutely. It should go further. Because that's what Paul tells us here in Romans. Doesn't it? According to Paul, it must be deeply rooted where? In our minds. Notice what he says. Let God transform you into the new person by doing what? Changing the way you think. So it has to go deeper than just the behavior and customs of the world. It has to be deeply rooted in our minds. We know what happens to a tree that doesn't have roots, right? What happens to it? It dies. It doesn't stand very long. Any little thing that comes along, any little wind that comes along can just topple it over. And that's why it needs to be deeply rooted. So why is, this, why is transformation so essential? Because it's very possible. And we don't think about this. You know, we brush off transformation. Oh, that's no big deal. But we need to think more seriously about that because it is very possible to stay away from the customs, most of the customs of worldliness, and still exhibit some of the characteristics of worldliness. Still be proud, jealous, selfish, stubborn, and vain. Now, let me ask you. Don't you see those characteristics among God's people? Don't lie in church. We see them, right? 
We see them. And that's why some of us are so upset sometimes. Because we say things like, oh, I thought he or she was saved. I remember when the gambling issue came on, on it, was, it was all this hullabaloo going on. I heard a fellow on a, on a talk show uh, talking about uh, one of the preacher's response to it, who was for it, and his response is, oh, I looked up, I thought he was saved. He said, I thought he was saved. Another fellow said about a, 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 another person, um, that person lose their salvation over this whole gambling issue. But these, these characteristics exist in the hearts and minds of people. I'm sure all of us have seen, we may, we, we may be able to sit here tonight and actually think about some Christians that we know who have upset us by demonstrating some of the same behavior. Pride, selfishness, stubbornness, and vanity. I know I could think of some. I'm sure you can too. Real transformation that has the ability to renew, re-educate, and redirect our mind can only come from one place. And where's that? Where's the one place that can come from? Anybody. Let's not all speak at once. Anybody. The Holy Spirit. Isn't that so? That's the only place it can come from. He's the only one that can renew, re-educate, and redirect our mind. And that's what Paul is saying here in Romans chapter 12. Let God change the way you think. Who do you think is going to make that change? God the Holy Spirit. He's the only one that can do it. Listen to what James chapter 4 and verse 4 says. You adulterous. Don't you realize that friendship with this world makes you an enemy of God? I say it again, he says. If you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. Do you think that makes God smile? Now, because God provides us with good quality gifts that he wants us to fully enjoy, there's absolutely nothing wrong with wanting to have a pleasurable life. Nothing wrong with that. So we're not trying to say that, you know, you need to go around living a dull life. That's not the point. The point is God wants us to have a good life. He wants us to have a pleasurable life. And uh, he says so much. He says something to that extent in his word. James chapter 117 says, Whatever is good and perfect comes down to us from God our Father. Notice, good and perfect. When you have good stuff, when you have perfect stuff, doesn't that make life pleasurable? It does. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 7. He has given to each of us a special gift through the generosity of Christ. Again, so that we may have a pleasurable life, a joyous, a joyous life. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 4 and 5. Since everything God created is good, we should not reject any of it, but receive it with thanks. Verse 5 says, For we know it is made acceptable by the word of God and prayer. That's why it's so important to pray for stuff. Because the prayer makes it acceptable. We give God thanks. We show our appreciation for him providing it for us. We acknowledge that it came from him. The, the, the Bible says the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Everything belongs to him. So God doesn't, doesn't have a problem with his children having a pleasurable life with the good things that he provides. But having friendship with the world involves two conducts that really makes God frown rather than smile. And that is looking for pleasure at the expense of others. God don't smile about that. That makes him frown. And looking for pleasure at the expense of obeying God. We reject God. We deny God. We, we brush God's word aside simply because we want to have our own way. We want to do our own thing. That doesn't make God smile at all. Just like any parent doesn't smile when their children are disobedient and fail to carry out the instructions or the rules that have been laid down by the family or the parent. Any kind of pleasure that keeps us from pleasing God 
is sinful. And obviously, God doesn't smile on that. But what really is good for us is pleasure that comes from the wealthy rewards that God gives us so that we can have a pleasurable life and he can smile on us and be gracious unto us and kind to us because we are walking in a way that is pleasing to him. Now, of the seven things on the list that God hates, as recorded in Proverbs 16, or Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 to 19, pride is at the top of the list. You ever notice that? We have that list. That list, God gives us. The verse says, there are six things that God hates. No, seven. And when we go through that list, you'll notice at the top of the list is pride. Now, of course, you remember that what was Satan's downfall? What was Lucifer's downfall? What was it? Pride. So no wonder that's at the top of the list because it created God's greatest arch enemy. Pride moved him to do what he did. And so pride is at the top of the list. Pride is the major worldly indulgence that doesn't make God smile because it created a whole lot of problems for God. It created Satan. And we know he's our major enemy today in the world, isn't it? But what do we use against pride? What is the, the primary weapon that we need to deal with pride? Being humble is the only way to treat pride and all of the other evils, evil desires that plague us. Proverbs 16, 18 says, pride goes before destruction and haughtiness before fall. Verse 19 says, better to live humbly with the poor than to share plunder with the proud. And then 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5, says, in the same way, you younger men must accept the authority of the elders and all of you serve each other in humility. And then he tells us why. For God opposes the proud. You're not going to get any smiles from God. He opposes that. He opposes the proud, but notice, but favors the humble. So this is one way that God will be gracious unto you. This is one way to make God's face shine upon you and be gracious unto you, by being humble. God opposes the proud, but favors the humble. Verse 6 says, so humble yourselves under the mighty power of God. And guess what? You see, God is no man's debtor. There's absolutely nothing that you will, can or will do for God that God is not going to match and beat that and do you better. The voice goes on. He says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God and at the right time, is the voice up there? Oh, they didn't get it done. At the right time, he will lift you up in honor. Now, a lot of times, we want to lift ourselves up in honor. A lot of times, we don't want to wait for the right time. And the right time is always God's time, not our time. The verse says, at the right time. And we don't dictate to God what the time is, what the right time is. God is the one who determines what the right time is. And he will not be manipulated. He says, at the right time, he will lift you up in honor. Now, one of the things about pride is that people who are proud hardly ever see their pride as their weakness. And they don't expect any obstacles to get in their way either. They believe that they are beyond the weaknesses of ordinary people. Notice, typical characteristics of pride. Such a state of mind is what causes them to trip over and fall so easily. And even though, even though everybody around them is well aware of their pride, pride people, proud people hardly ever recognize that pride is their problem. They don't see it. Now, for some of us looking at a person's proud behavior and attitude, we wonder, it's so obvious to us, but not to them. They don't see it. And that's why in brotherly love and compassion, 
We need to approach them about it. We need to tell them about it. If we love them, because we know what the Bible says about pride, doesn't it? Don't we know? So are we going to see a brother walking along and carrying on in pride and not say anything to him about it? They don't see it. Sometimes we think they're being belligerent. They know what, they, 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 what they're doing, and they just, they just want to do it. Sometimes they don't know. They're not aware of it. And it takes someone who sees it to make it known to them. But what does pride do? Pride makes people self-centered and causes them to conclude that they deserve every single thing they can lay their eyes on and their hands on or even imagine. That's what pride does. But pride also generates gluttonous appetites for much more than what they actually needed. Remember the rich man who had the barn full of stuff, got great harvest, prosperous business. Instead of saying, boy, you know, I could give a lot to the, to the um, food bank or to the, to the feeding programs, and uh, I, I got access. I don't have enough place to store all this stuff, so I could just give away all the excess that I have to the people who have need of it. What does he decide to do? Oh, man, this is good. You know, business is good. I'm going to tear down these small barns, build bigger ones so they can have enough space. That's what he said. Gluttonous appetites for much more than is actually needed. He didn't need all that extra stuff. This is what pride does. He was proud of his business success. And that's what pride challenged him to do with it. But release from self-centered desires comes only by humbling ourselves before God and understanding that his approval is all that we really need. Just God's approval. We don't need man's approval. We need God's approval. He's the only one. When we are filled with the Holy Spirit, we can see clearly that the, 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 the seductive attractions of this world are nothing more than cheap substitutes compared to what God offers us. And so there's a principle for us to apply then as we look at this issue of pride, something that we can take away with us. Avoid the embarrassing fall of pride by looking for a warning sign. There are always warning signs. Ask a trusted friend, someone that you, you have confidence in. Ask him to tell you whether you are blinded by self-satisfaction. Because remember now, pride persons don't see their pride. They don't see their pride. They don't see the pride as, a, as their problem. So, ask a trusted friend, someone who you can talk with, someone who you can, someone who you know is going to be honest with you and upfront. Do you think I'm, I'm proud? Do you think I exhibit self-satisfaction in my way that I live? And if they're a good friend, a real true friend. They'll tell you. They'll be honest with you. That's one way to ensure that God will make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. Romans 13, 14. It says, clothe yourself in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. And don't let yourself think about ways to indulge your evil desires. Good advice, isn't it? Here we see another behavior that makes God smile rather than frown. But how do we actually clothe ourselves with the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ? We read that verse all the time. But what does it really mean to clothe ourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ? Sounds good. Sounds noble. It's good for us to do, right? What does it mean? First, we identify with Christ by being baptized. Galatians 3.27 says, And all of you who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ. Like putting on new clothes. Now I'm reading from the New Living Translation. In case you don't see this looking like what you have in your Bibles. All of this is the New Living Translation. So he says, Put on Christ. So, if the Bible says put on Christ, it means that we should be able to do it, right? 
We can do it. And then he tells us, it's simple, like putting on clothes. How hard is it, hard is it to put on clothes? We do it every day, right? Like putting on new clothes. And of course, this shows our unity with other Christians and with the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we identify with Christ and other believers and in the death, burial of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the first thing that we do to show how we put on the Lord Jesus. The second thing is we demonstrate a couple of characteristics. We demonstrate love, humility, truth, and service. Now you notice those are major characteristics that the Lord Jesus Christ showed during his time on earth. In fact, everything that Jesus did showed love, humility, truth, and service. And so what we'll be doing is actually role-playing what Jesus has done on earth. We role-play what Jesus did in the situations and circumstances in our lives that, we come in, that, 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 that come into our lives. And so any activity or situation that would stimulate the gratification of sinful desires must be avoided. In other words, like Joseph, take off running, even if you've got to leave all your clothes behind. We are reminded of our past, that our past is not something that uh, we are to be proud about in, in Ephesians chapter 2, and verse 3, which is one of the reasons why we need to get away from those situations that gratify sinful desires. And Paul says in Romans chapter, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, all of us used to live that way. What way? Gratifying sinful desires. He says, all of us used to live that way, past tense, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. Boy, now, that's a past that you don't want to even think about, eh? Is that a past that you would be proud to talk about? Mm -mm. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger just like everyone else, he says. So the fact that we are subject to God's anger by the very nature really tells us that this is not a behavior or activity or conduct that God would smile on. Ever see an angry person smile? Have you? I've never seen it. Angry people don't usually smile. They grimace. They frown. The reality that, that everyone commits sin is a clear demonstration that without Christ, everyone has a sinful nature. That's what Paul is saying here. Everyone is lost in sin and can't save themselves. And this no, in no way singles out Christians alone as being good. That's not the implication now. Many people are blessed by being good to others. There are a lot of people in our world that we come in contact with and that we know that are moral, kind, and law-abiding on a comparative scale. On a comparative scale, compared to criminals, you could say they are, without a doubt, very good people. But according to God's absolute scale, as outlined in God's word, no one is good enough to earn salvation. The Bible tells us that quite clearly. And so referring to our past, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1, you are dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. So being united with the perfect life of Christ is the only way to become good in God's sight and as a result, receive the smile of God, to receive God's face shining upon us and being gracious unto us. And of course, there's another phrase in there that he uses, subject to God's anger, as a reference to those who, who receive God's wrath because of their rejection of Christ. And so there's a principle for us to apply then that we can take from our lives, take to our, and put, put to our lives. Think about the values. Think about what values are most important to you and whether your actions reflect the values of this world or God's values to determine whether your behavior is making God smile or frown. What values are more important to you? 
But then secondly, Christians who don't live for, who only live for today, does not make God smile. Christians who, whose lives are built based on what is just temporal. Temporal. First John chapter 2, verse 17, the first part of the verse says, and this world is fading away along with everything that people crave. Everything. Not some things. Because the craving for possessions and sinful gratification can be so intense sometimes in our lives, the more the mere thought that such objects of desire will one day pass away never even crosses our mind. The intense desire for them is so intense that we don't even think that they're, not, they're only temporary. We don't even think that they're passing, that they're not going to be here forever. In fact, some people find it hard to believe that those who do the will of God will live forever. But that's exactly what John had in mind. And it's based entirely on the facts of the life, death, and resurrection and the promises of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who believe that they do the will of God will live forever. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 31 gives us another reminder. He says, those who use the things of this world should not become attached to them. But isn't that what we do? We get so attached to the things of this world. For this world as we know it will soon pass away, he says. And so you could say that Paul's advice to believers today is not to consider things like marriage, home, or financial security as the vital goals of this life. The vital goals of this life. As much as we possibly can, we should live unrestricted lives. Unrestricted by the concerns of this world. In other words, don't get too attached. Paul's point here is that by avoiding burdensome mortgages, financial plans, investments, or debts, we could remove many of the obstacles that prevent us from doing the work of God at all or even effectively. How many times have you approached a believer about doing something for God, doing some, working in some ministry, and their response is, boy, you know, I got so much work. I, I got a workload I can't do nothing else right now. How many times have we heard that? That's what Paul is talking about here. They become so encumbered by the things of this world, so attached to the things of this world that we ain't got no time for God. Remember that. God blesses us. First of all, he gives us the job that we have to, to begin with. He blesses us with the kind of lifestyle that we have that we enjoy every day and probably don't even thank him for it. And then when God says, you know, I need you for, for, for a couple hours, just, just, just two hours. And we say, man, God, you know, I, I'm busy. I, I got some things I need to do. I, I can't afford two hours, man, you kidding me? And God says, but, you know, I gave you 24 hours. You got 22. You can keep. I only want two. What's our response? I ain't got no time. Football coming on. And I can't miss that game. That's the big game. My team playing. Well, you know, we got that nice big boat that you bless us with. And we, we ain't had the time to go on that boat, man. You need to, you know, ease up, Lord. Ease up. This is what he's talking about. Those who use the things of this world should not become attached to them. This world, as we know it, will soon pass away. He said, we're not going to care that job with us when we go. All that work that you got to do, when you go, that could be right here. Man, guy, somebody else to do it. 
that boat can get left here too. You know, I like Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes talks about all the stuff that we accumulated, and somebody else is going to come behind and enjoy it. And the person who comes behind it to enjoy it may not have the appreciation that you have had in earning it. It's all meaningless. So here's how we apply this then. Let the reality of this world, let the reality that this evil world will eventually come to an end be all the courage you need to deny yourselves the short-term gratifications this world offers in order to enjoy what God has promised long-term in eternity. And then our final point, our third point and final point is, we find it in First uh, John chapter 2, verse 17, the last part of that verse. Christians who make God smile live to please him. Christians who make God smile live to please him, not themselves or anybody else. But anyone who does what pleases God will live forever, is what John says. What pleases God? Anything in our lives that does not make our love for spiritual things boring. Anything. Anything in our lives that does not make our love for spiritual things boring. Now, we got a lot of things in our lives that, you know, we would much prefer to do than be involved in spiritual things, including giving God a couple extra hours. Anything in our lives that does not make it easy for us to sin is what pleases God. These are the things that make God smile. Living for the world and its stuff means losing everything in the long run. That's something we don't think about because the world is passing away. Yet that is exactly what worldly people live their entire lives for. And some Christians are also being bamboozled into doing the same thing. But if we live to please God, he says, we will abide forever. And then Jesus gives us an interesting warning in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 through 23. Notice what he says. Not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven. On judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and perform many miracles in your name. Verse 23 says, but I will reply, I never, what? Finish it. Knew you. There was never a time that we had any kind of relationship. We had no kind of relationship. We never did. That's what he's saying. And then he says, get away from me, you who break the law, break God's laws. See, not everyone who talks favorably about heaven is actually a citizen of heaven. Something to think about. Not everybody who talks favorably about heaven is going there. Some people believe that if they are good people and say a lot of religious things, God is going to reward them with eternal life. The Bible doesn't teach that. Jesus, in fact, Jesus exposed people who sounded religious and had no personal relationship with him in that verse we just read. He exposed them. He said they sounded religious, but they didn't have any relationship with him. You see, he is much more concerned about how we walk than he is about how we talk. Much more concerned. What really pleases him most is when we do the right thing rather than just say the right thing. We must always be conscious of the fact that our actions cannot really be separated from our beliefs. Our, acts, our, our beliefs will eventually come out in our actions. All that will really matter on Judgment Day is our relationship with Christ as Redeemer, our acceptance of Christ as Savior, and our obedience to Christ as Lord. That's the bottom line. In reality, faith in Christ 
is all that will count on Judgment Day. And that's why it's so important that we live in a way that pleases God now so that we can experience that blessing that the, that the, the priestly, the, the, the Levites priests gave to the children of Israel. That could be an extended blessing to, to, to us today. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. Final principle is this. While taking care of all of the necessities, the worldly necessities and responsibilities, make every effort to maintain humility and control. Now, notice what he's saying. Don't neglect your worldly responsibilities. But take care of them in a responsible way. But at the same time, maintain modesty. That's the point. And so, what makes God smile? Christians who engage in worldliness don't. Christians who live for today only don't. But those who live to please him always do. Let each of us endeavor, all of us, as we leave here tonight and go forth during the course of the week, the devil is going to tell us to Put your money where your mouth is. And so the challenge for all of us then is, as we leave here tonight, let's endeavor to behave in a way that pleases and honors God alone as we live in a world that does not care about God or his ways. Now, we need to remember that as we go. Amen? Father, we thank you this evening that you have given us another opportunity to look at what really pleases you and honors you, what makes you delighted in our ways. We pray, O oh Lord, that we may take to heart what you've said to us, not just in an audible, collective way this evening, but mostly from that still, small voice in each of our hearts because you've said something different to all of us here tonight. And we pray, O oh Lord, that we may take it seriously and endeavor to apply it in a way that would bring you glory, honor, and praise. Bless us now as we separate. Take, each other, take us to our homes with peace and safety. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. The Lord bless you and make you a blessing as you go.